Beloved, open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 15. And uh, we're halfway through the next to last chapter of this letter to the Romans. And I'm feeling this like uh, this intense temptation to really slow down. Because I don't want to leave this book. You know, I there's something about the book of Romans, I, you know, just as far as the epistles go, that for me... This is the greatest of them all. And it is because of, and it's not just because we're studying through it right now. It is because of, of, of the truth that it teaches us. And this morning, I'm, I'm really moved by this thought i've been thinking about this this morning what right do we any of us have to have received this letter from paul we live in a world that is big on entitlement aren't we don't we our world is filled with just the echoes of entitlement i deserve this and i deserve that and i deserve the other thing and i'll never forget i'll never forget the look on my mother-in-law's face one time my children were little. I think we only had Sam and Jake at this time. Maybe John was in Gretchen's womb. I'm not sure. But I remember she came to visit. And the kids were whining about wanting something. And she interceded and she said, Come on, Dad, they deserve it. And I looked at her and I said, No, Betty, what they deserve is hell and death. Everything else is grace. And I was dead serious. I mean, you know, I wasn't like overly stern. It wasn't like I was pursing my lips and trying to, but I was very serious. And she looked at me as if I said the choicest, foulest, you know, four letter word you can imagine. But it's the truth. How graced are we by God to have received these words? How graced we are that The Almighty God inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words, not only for the Roman church, but for every church. How grateful we ought to be for what we've received. And so here we are at the end of this book. And Paul is beginning his extended, you know, postscript. And he's stringing together a bunch of different ideas and a bunch of different thoughts that, you know, he has. Just final sort of reflections on his ministry, encouragement, you know, to the church. Because he's done all the heavy lifting. Like the heavy lifting's done. The towering, the monumental exposition of the glorious gospel in the first 11 chapters is, is complete. It's done. There's nothing that needs to be added, right? Paul has done it perfectly. His masterful exhortation and explanation of the life to which Christians have been called because we are saved, right? The way in which we are to glorify and magnify the triune God, which he just finished in the previous verse, right? It's over. He's done with all of that. He has systematically explained the unparalleled truth of salvation by grace. He's authoritatively described the consequent Christian ethic by which we are to live. And yet Paul's not finished. 
He probably would have gotten a D in seminary for preaching. His, his, his conclusion's entirely too long. He should have just had a couple of sentences here, you know. Had a closing hymn and been done with it. But that's not what Paul does. He's got more to say. There are final words that, that we are yet, that we yet need to consider. And, and here's what I want us to see. Sometimes people will get to this part in Romans and just stop reading. And they get done. Or sometimes they'll make it through, you know, Romans 15, but when they get to 16 where it's the personal greetings and stuff, okay, that's where they're done. Listen to me. If it's important enough for the Holy Spirit to inspire it and include it in the Word of God, then it's important enough for us to understand it, right? So, so let's look at these words this morning. These final words for us to consider. We're not going to look at all of chapter 15 because it's too much. But I want us to look at verses 14 through 21. So let's stand together as we read this word in honor of whose word it is, Almighty God's. And we'll read these verses and then we'll pray and then we will get into this text this morning. Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are filled, are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way round to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, who are we that you would speak to us your eternal word through your faithful apostle, Paul? Who are we that you would speak to us your faithful word, your your glorious truth, Lord, through faithful prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel? Who are we that you would give to us such glorious truth. Who are we that you would favor us as you have? The only answer is, we must be your people. We must be those chosen by your grace. We must be those chosen out of a heart of love to belong to you as your own. I thank you that you call us, you nourish us, you cherish us, you encourage us, you give us faith to believe, and you sanctify us so that we might be made more like the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Thank you, Father, that you are intent on pursuing not just, you know, our minds and convincing our minds, but you are intent on pursuing our hearts and, Lord God, convincing our will. 
You desire of us obedience from a thankful heart. You desire from us faith that rests in a worthy object, which is you. You desire of us lives that mark us as delivered out of darkness and into your kingdom of light. You are faithful to those who are truly yours. And we're thankful that you are. Lord God, we need your instruction. Lord God, we need your discipline. Lord God, we need you to, 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 to lead us as a shepherd leads foolish sheep. Because that's what we are. We need you to expend your divine power on behalf of our needy souls. And you delight to do it. There is nobody like you. And there is no one whom we could ever esteem like you. All of our idols... They are worthless. Every other source of wisdom is worthless. Every other purported way of salvation is worthless. You alone, you alone, Lord Jesus, have the words of eternal life. To whom else can we go? So I pray, make our hearts attentive and desires to receive your truth today and father i pray that that you would grant me to have the unction of the holy spirit that you would lead me in everything that i say and everything that i do that i would be an instrument in your hands for honorable use and that lord i would not speak of myself but i would speak only you know of your accord and to the praise of your glory So please bless us and draw near to us as we look at this text, I pray. In Jesus' holy name I ask it. Amen. You know, beloved, I can kind of of, uh, relate to Paul here. I have a difficult time sometimes shutting things down. I had a friend, you know, our friends that came up from Texas, he said, you know, whenever you say, and in conclusion, I'm banking we got about 40 minutes left, right, when you're preaching, which is an exaggeration. I just want to go on record. That's an exaggeration. But it is hard sometimes to wrap things up. And especially when there's a few things that are still outstanding that you want to share that is in your heart. And we see that here with Paul, right? I mean, granted, the Holy Spirit is inspiring this. It's, but, but this is, these are Paul's words, right? This is Paul's personality. Paul, the, it's, it's not like when the Holy Spirit inspires the apostles to write that their personalities get checked at the door and their vocabulary is, you know, holy and only King James English and all that other stuff, right? That's not how it works. When men are inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture, their personality, their language, their, 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 their way of speaking, how they address people, it comes through, right? And that's what's going on here with Paul. So he's getting to the end of this letter. And, and, and he's got some things that he wants to say to us. And in particular, this text that we're looking at this morning, it really breaks down into four components. Four kind of, four components, and they're loosely affiliated, but not necessarily. Like, but just four things that come to his mind as he's, as he's closing this down. So let me just, Throw them out there to you so you can be, you know, looking for them. And then we're going to look at them, all right? So, so here's the four components that, that Paul sort of has at, at the beginning of this, of this postscript, right? 
The first thing that Paul wants to do as he, as he shuts down this letter is he wants to offer commendation to the Roman church for their maturity in Christ. He wants them to understand, hey, you know what? I want you to understand that, that I don't think you guys are deficient, but I, I want you to understand, you know, the reason that I'm writing this letter. And that's really the second thing that he does. He first commends them, and then the second thing he does is he explains why he wrote the letter. He explains why he took the time to put together the greatest gospel treatise ever written, right? And so he wants them to understand why he has written this. And then the third thing Paul does is that he speaks of what Christ has accomplished through him. He speaks of the, the work that God has done in him by the power of Christ um, for the ministry of the gospel. And then the last thing that, that Paul does is he expresses the holy ambition that governs the whole of his life. The holy ambition that he cannot shake and that informs every aspect of his life. Okay? And so, again, what we've got here is not necessarily a systematic exposition of doctrine, but rather the words of Paul's own reflection regarding the Roman Christians and regarding his own mission as an apostle. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to work through this first part of Paul's, Paul's postscript, verses 14 through 21. We're going to do it chunk by chunk. And as we do it, I want to make some application along the way. Okay, so you need to be listening for the application as we go. We're not going to get to the end if, like, you, so you can zone out, you know, for the next 45 minutes and then zone back in for the last 15 when I give you all those application things. The application is going to be throughout. So you got to listen throughout, okay? So the first thing I want us to do is let's look at this commendation that he gives to the church in Rome because it's a wonderful one. And it's one that we should all aspire to. It's one that every church should aspire to. We should aspire to this. Look at what he says in verse 14. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. I'm satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Okay, now this isn't sort of the tongue-in-cheek thing that he does with the Corinthians, where the Corinthians are bragging about how awesome they are, and Paul's like, oh yeah, you guys are awesome, right? That's not it. This is an actually, this is like a real commendation here. And in fact, it shows a great deal of humility on Paul's part. Here's why I'm saying that. You guys know Paul didn't found the church in Rome, right? You know that, right? He didn't establish the church in Rome. In fact, Paul had never even gone and preached to the church in Rome. He'd never ministered the word of God there not even once. And yet, as an apostle, he wants them to know, like, look, you guys aren't missing in any of the essential graces that the church of Christ needs to have. You guys are, are legit. You're the real deal, right? You are, you are a real, you're a solid church. That's what he wants them to understand, right? That he's writing to them this letter, as we'll see in the next verse, not because there's any deficiency in them. Not because he studied them and he says, you know, you've got these three or four things going for you, but here's the big thing that I see that's a problem. It's not that at all. He's not writing to them because they're deficient in any way. It's, in fact, they, they, they demonstrated real maturity in Christ. And so he expresses his satisfaction to them, uh, satisfaction regarding them. And, and, and that word satisfied is a word in, in Greek that means to be fully persuaded with complete trust and confidence about some things. Okay? That's what it means. 
It means you just, your heart is just at rest as it regards this person or that person or this church or this situation or whatever, right? When, when you use this Greek word that's translated here as, as satisfied. And so Paul is saying, look, I am, I am at complete trust and confidence as it regards you, you know, in light of three specific things. In light of three specific things. First he says, I'm satisfied, I'm confident, I'm convinced that y'all are full of, good, full of goodness. You are full of goodness. Now when he says that, you know, it's important for us to get the idea here, okay? And, and it does kind of lead into his next commendation, but it's important for us to get the idea here. He's confident that the gospel had taken such, such full root in the hearts of the Romans that it produced in them a life that really and truly was pleasing to God. That it produced in them a life that was overflowing with good works. It's not just that they had good theology. It's not just that they could affirm certain things. It's not just that they were skilled in amening in the right spots in the sermons. It's not just that they had a reputation for good works. Are you guys following with me? You tracking where I'm going here? It was intrinsic to them. Because they were really transformed people. They weren't trying to establish a reputation. Their reputation was established by their nat- the natural outworking of their faith in Christ. And that reputation was, y'all are full of good works. You all are full of good works. You're full of the grace of the Holy Spirit. In fact, like the Thessalonians, right? The church in Rome, which was made up of a majority of Gentiles, had, you know, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. They weren't, they didn't just, we weren't just concerned about having a certain appearance. They were concerned about the guts of it, man, the reality of it. And it was evident in their lives, man. People would look at the Roman church and they could say, those folks, I don't know, man, they're the real deal. What they say about Jesus, they, they actually, they, they, they walk their talk, those people. It's a wonderful compliment, isn't it? It's a remarkable one. There's no shortage of good fruit. The good fruit of faith in their lives. And then second, Paul says to them and and really, this is where that good work come from, comes from. He says, he commends them, they're filled with all knowledge. That they're filled with all knowledge. And I don't want you to get the wrong idea here. It's not that they were walking around like big brainiacs, you know, big fat heads and little skinny bodies. That's not what this is. It's not the, the idea that, you know, they could sit down and write a systematic theology or five. That's not the idea. The idea is that They were filled not merely with a theoretical knowledge of the gospel and the doctrines of God, but here's the key. They knew God himself in truth. They knew God. They knew God. They knew his ways. They knew his character. They knew his person. And that personal and experiential knowledge of God had powerful effects, right? Yes, they knew doctrine. Yes, they knew, you know, the scriptures, right? And that's essential for us. We must know the Word of God, right? But the Word of God 
is not an end in itself. Are you hearing me? There are many people who have fallen away from the faith who thought just simply knowing Scripture, knowing theology was enough. It's not. Theology is not an end end to itself, right? We never hear of the disciples taking notes as Jesus is, say, preaching the Sermon on the Mount and then going away and speaking no further to Jesus. Experiential knowledge is what counts. Knowing the, the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing Christ Jesus Himself, you know, by the power of the Holy Spirit, being drawn into a real, vibrant, true communion with the living God, where you don't regard Him as an abstract thing, but when you know Him as the personal, faithful God that He is. He's not an idea. Christianity is not a rubric of good moral ideas. Christianity is not a better way of life. In fact, Paul said, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we of all people are the most to be pitied. It's knowing Christ. It's knowing the Lord. Right? It's knowing Him. And they did. And you know what that did? Knowing Him, knowing the Lord in truth, here's what it did for them. It centered them and it grounded them. They were not easily shaken. It encouraged them and it sustained them in this darkened world. Their knowledge of God. Their, their you know, knowledge of who they were in Christ. Beloved, it gave them hope and endurance in this present as they looked with expectancy to the eternal hope that was to be realized at Christ's return. In other words, this was a church that was both doctrinally sound and experientially deep. Their knowledge wasn't just cursory or or surfacy. It was intensive. It was searching. And they didn't let up until they knew the heart of God. It was this doctrinal and experiential knowledge of God that held them tethered to the Lord in all circumstances. In fact, it was the most important thing about him. Listen to me when I say this to you, beloved. I mean this with all of my heart. You can know all the theology in the world, but if you don't know the God of that theology, when hardships and trials and difficulties come, you will be shattered on the rock. You will. You will. You know this is true. Think about it. You know, you you get on the internet, right? People get on the internet, they get on Facebook or they get on Instagram and somebody will have a quote by somebody, right? And sometimes, if you will read that quote without the person that said it, ah, that's kind of a dumb thing. Oh, and then you see it was said by John F. Kennedy. Oh, well, wait a minute. Maybe this is really good after all, right? A person gives weight to those words, right? Right? Like if I stand up here and say to you, Joe Schmo says blah, blah, blah. But if I say Charles Spurgeon eloquently said, right? Joe Schmo, you're not listening to. Or you're thinking, maybe I can take this and twist it just a tiny bit and post it myself and sound smart, right? But if I see Charles Spurgeon, you're like, 
oh, okay, well, yeah, this is going to be important, right? The person gives the words weight. I'm not saying that independent of the Lord, although His Word's not independent of Him, right? It's not. The Word of God is not independent of God. But what I am saying is this. What gives these words weight? For instance, what gives Paul's words weight? Or not that Paul said them. That the Holy Spirit said them through Paul. Right? You with me? And then the last thing he says to him is this. He says, he commends them because they're able to instruct one another. That might not seem like a very important thing, right? That might not seem like a big deal. I mean, after all, if you've got a pastor, isn't that his job? You know, everybody else being able to instruct one another, okay, right? But beloved, I want you to see how very valuable this is. I want you to see how very valuable this is. The word for instruct here is the Greek word nuthateo. Nuthateo. And you may have heard the phrase nuthetic counseling. Anybody heard that? Nuthetic counseling? You know what that is? That's counseling from the Word of God. It's biblical counseling from the Word of God. It's counseling that uses the Word of God as the very root of everything that you counsel. Okay? And the idea here is this. Being able to instruct one another. The idea is being able to set one another right. It's the idea of being able to lay on the heart of one another with a corrective, correcting and an exhorting influence the truth of God. It describes an effect on the will and on the desires. It, it, it expresses a, a, a power to put right what's wrong, to improve somebody's spiritual attitude by appropriate instruction and exhortation and warning and correction. Paul, in essence, is saying here, you know what? Here's what's true about you guys. Here's what is true about you. Not only are you filled with goodness, and not only are you filled with all knowledge, but you know what? You guys take it the next step, and you are great at admonishing and counseling and instructing one another. You're faithful to engage in spiritual watch care over one another, to shepherd one another's souls from the Word of God, and to bring the Word to bear in the life of a brother or a sister for their good. You actually care about your brother and sister. And you actually care about them with what you can actually care about them with, which is the Word of God. The greatest way in which you can care for somebody. Look, you can feed somebody's bellies until they're fat as a tick. You can give somebody a place to sleep all you want to. You can, you know, put water in a, in a bucket for them from a, from a well over and over. But if you do nothing to address their soul, everything that you have done will burn up on the day of judgment because it's all temporal and it's none of it's eternal. Are you hearing me? These guys were serious about caring for one another from the Word of God. In fact, Paul talks about this a lot. I'll just give you one other place. Over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14, he gets to the end of this letter, right? And he says, I, we urge you, brothers. We urge you. Admonish the idol. Admonish, rebuke those that are out of step. That's what the word idol means. Encourage the faint-hearted. Man, have a word of encouragement for the one that's about to fall. And help the weak. Help the weak. Bear your brother's burden. Bear your sister's burden with them. 
Be patient with them all. The general tenor of the Roman church was one of mutual love and mutual instruction and mutual upbuilding and mutual submission to the Word of God exclusively. I want to emphasize that. Exclusively. It's, it's that knowledge of God that makes us able to instruct and counsel one another, beloved. Not hollow human philosophy or psychology or worldly wisdom which changes continually. Continually it changes. Why do you think we have several versions of the manual for diagnostics of whatever, of psychological problems? In, I can't remember what it's called. DSM, whatever it is. Why do you think we have so many of them? Because the standards keep changing. Counsel one another from the Word of God. Shepherding one another's soul from the Word of God. We need truth. Not the garbage that infiltrates Facebook and and Instagram that so many Christians... I see this and I just want to like... I don't know what I want to do. Cuff somebody or comment. But I see so many people liking that kind of garbage. Like I'm telling you right now, I don't care what politician it is, I don't care what, you know, philosopher it is, I don't I don't care who it is. I don't care what place they claim to hold. I don't care what honors that they might have gotten. Nobody's words, nobody's ideas, nobody's theories are worth even a fraction of what the Word of God is worth. Scripture is very clear about it. Get wisdom. It's greater than golden rubies and diamonds. Get wisdom. It gives you life. Get wisdom. It will keep you from the way of the transgressor. Get wisdom. Get wisdom. Get wisdom. That's why Paul told the Ephesian elders, I commend to you, you to God and, he says it, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And beloved, we need this mutual counsel. Are you hearing me? We need it. We need We each need counsel at various times and we need to receive it gladly. Our brothers and our sisters need this counsel and we need to freely and faithfully give it. Beloved, it's essential to our spiritual good to both have a heart to give counsel and a heart to receive it. And can I be honest with you? That might be the most difficult and most challenging thing to do to receive instruction rightly and gladly and with thanksgiving. When people hear something from Scripture they don't want to hear, the defense is always the same. You could have done that better. You could have said that nicer. You could have understood more. Beloved, I want you to consider this. I want you to consider these multiplied sayings of the Proverbs. I've been reading through the Proverbs, right? 
I think after we get done with Isaiah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just collect the Proverbs in some different sections, and we're going to go through the Proverbs on Wednesday night. But I was re- I've been reading through, right? I'm just underlining as I'm going. Just listen to this, this run in Proverbs. Proverbs 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Kids, there's your defense. Whenever your mom and dad says you're not allowed to say that word. Solomon did. No, don't. I'm just kidding. Don't. Don't do that. 12.15, Proverbs 12. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 15.10. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Proverbs 15.12, a scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. Proverbs 15, verses 31 through 33, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself. But he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. Proverbs 18.1 Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Proverbs 19.27 Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Proverbs 29.1 Perhaps the most terrifying. He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. I could go on. I trust that you're getting the point. Beloved, we need to welcome instruction. We need to welcome rebuke and correction. We need to welcome exhortation to godliness and uprightness for our own spiritual good, for our spiritual life. May the God, may God give us a a heart like the psalmist when he says in Psalm 141 verse 5, let a righteous man strike me. It is kindness. Let him rebuke me. It's oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. In other words, I don't care how you handled this. I'm just glad you gave me the word of life. No excuses. I gladly receive what you're saying to me. Now here's the thing, beloved. Paul wasn't an empty flatterer, right? He wasn't. He wasn't that guy. He spoke the truth, and in his estimation, these spiritual graces, being full of goodness and filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another, they defined the church in Rome. You know what? I believe that those specific graces are pretty well applicable to our own. I really do. I believe they describe our church pretty well. I'm not saying we're perfect, right? I'm not saying that we don't have areas in which we need to improve or that we don't need to keep striving. But what I am saying to you is, this is something I believe that could be said of our church. I really do. I'm convinced of it. I, I do believe, I really do believe that the vast, vast majority of us 
are, are, are striving that the gospel would bear the fruit of good works in our lives. I really do believe that. Like, I don't think we're, we're there, the vast majority of us is living haphazardly and, and, and just ignorantly and foolishly and whatever. I don't believe that at all. I really do believe that we're laboring, that our knowledge in the Lord not be merely theoretical, but experiential and real. And I, I believe that we're equipped and, and able to instruct one another and to spiritually care for one another. In fact, I have seen that in action when there's been one willing to give counsel and one willing to receive it. But you've got to have both, right? It takes two to tango. I believe this is a good church, man. I believe this is a faithful church. I believe it's a pleasing church. And you need to hear that. I know sometimes we're hesitant to commend one another, aren't we? We're hesitant to commend one another for our growth in Christ or for our growth in grace or or for the many evidences of God's grace in each of our lives. Maybe we don't want to do it. Maybe we're hesitant to do so because we don't want to seem presumptuous, you know? Like we don't want to... Or self-important, like, I've got it all together, and so therefore, from sitting on high, I can look at your life and tell you that, yes, indeed, I do see the fruit of God's grace in your life. Right? I know maybe that's, maybe that's what it is for us. I don't know. But, but I think we can be really hesitant. I want you to hear when I say this to you. Encouragement is a good thing. Encouragement is a good thing. And, and encouragement, listen to me, it is vital to our endurance in the faith. Do you understand? Like there's not a one of us that in the race of faith that we don't at one time or another get broken down. Do you know what I'm saying? Where you're just tired. Where it feels like you can't put one more foot, fr- you know, you can't put another foot in front of you. Like it's not, you know, one step forward and two steps back. It's more like, Half a step forward and five steps back. And it's just heavy and it's a weight. That's when we need to be serious about encouraging one another. And, and doing it in a good way. Not like, you know, you, you don't have stink anymore. Like, not that. I remember when I was playing football. I remember I had a football game. Did really, my dad says to me, you were half decent today. Half decent? Thanks. You know, I don't think I've ever said that to one of my kids. You're half decent. Maybe I'll start. I don't know. No, it's foolishness. We need encouragement. I got a card last week. I got a card last week from one of the girls in our youth group for Pastor Appreciation Month. Okay, I'm not going to call her name because I don't want to embarrass her. But she's not here. Then she's the daughter of Mike Larson. And her first name starts with an A. Annika sent me a card. And I'm going to tell you this, and I haven't had a chance to say this to her yet. I want to say it to her, but I think she's under the heaviness of COVID or the flu or something, right? She got something. I wanted to see her this morning and say this to her. I want, I really, I want you to hear me when I say this. She sent me a card. It was unquestionably. Unquestionably. One of the most thoughtful substantive, comprehensive, kind, and encouraging messages 
I have ever received. I'm talking, this is not hyperbole, top three in the last 29 years of ministry. I read that in my eyes filled with tears and my heart that had been hurting It was like saying, sick him to a bulldog. It was remarkable. I put it in my office in a conspicuous place so that when I'm sitting at my desk, I'll see it and so I can read it frequently. I've already read it a couple more times. We, Gretchen and I, received another remarkable card just recently from another member of our congregation. It was in the same vein. Right when we needed it. Beloved, we need to listen to what William Plummer says, because he's right. He says, whenever truth will allow and fit occasion shall offer, we should express favorable opinions of our Christian brethren. Good men need encouragement as well as warning. Amen. I'm not saying make something up. I'm not saying that we all need a participation trophy. But man, look at your brothers and sisters in Christ. And know them well enough that you can actually compliment them on the work of Christ in their lives. Because they need it. That's what Paul does here. Alright then, then why the letter? Why does he write the letter then? Like if these guys are a good church and they're doing fine, and usually Paul, you know, writes letters to correct stuff or fix stuff that's going on, like, so why write this letter? Why would Paul take the time and make the effort to write this masterful exposition of the gospel to the church in Rome? Well, he tells us. He says, starting in verse 15, But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified, By the Holy Spirit. Paul was purposeful and deliberate in everything that he did. Right? This is no different. Paul says, look, I wrote this letter out of a sense of holy boldness because I wanted to remind you of some stuff that you already know but you need to remember. I wanted to write you this stuff so that it's on the forefront of your mind. So these things that I'm telling you, you will be weighing them and considering them and, and, and you will be continually living out of this truth that I know you know, but I know you need to be reminded of. Right? Okay, well, what are the things that Paul has reminded them or emphasized in this letter. Let's just think about it. I'm going to do a quick run. I want You don't need to write this down because you've been through the sermons. But I just want you to think about the kind of stuff that Paul's been saying to these guys. You know, first of all, he's spoken about the eternal power and the divine nature of God that fallen mankind refuses to honor, right? And refuses to give thanks for as a result of our radical depravity, right? He emphasized the holiness of God and how sinful we are. And he's described how apart from Christ, we are all thorough, we are, we are all thoroughgoingly corrupted by sin. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now. We are corrupted at the very, you know, heart of who we are. As a result, Paul's talked about God's wrath that we richly deserve for our ungodliness and our unrighteousness. 
He's conclusively proven that that there is no amount of good works, there's no amount of human effort that we can engage in that can relieve our guilt and place us in a right standing with God. Nothing. Then praise the Lord, He exalts and magnifies God's great grace to provide believing sinners with the forgiveness and the righteousness which we desperately need, right? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and His propitiation by His blood. Then he emphasizes this redemption, this salvation, this great salvation. You can only receive it by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it brings with it this wonderful, glorious peace and reconciliation of sinners like us with the holy God, right? He's talked about, very powerfully in fact, about our being born into Adam by nature. How in Adam, all men die, right? In Adam, everybody dies. And then he's talked about how by His grace, His immense and glorious and awesome, powerful, irresistible grace, He has rescued us and taken us out of Adam and He's put us in Christ and in Christ all live. Right? He's spoken of the new life that we have in Christ. This new life of righteousness that's the result of God's grace. He's described life in the Spirit. The mighty ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives for our good. He's emphasized God's sovereign commitment to our salvation. His his electing love. His predestination. His effectual calling. His justification and His guarantee of our glorification. He's assured us of the fullness and the steadfastness of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's given us a great treatise on God's sovereignty and salvation and the way in which He's acted to save Jews and Gentiles. He's called us to be living sacrifices, to have our minds continually renewed so we're no longer conformed to the world from which we've been rescued. He calls us to one Vital desire. The main thing, which is the kingdom of God. And then, He speaks to us of our one great goal while we're on this earth together. That together, we with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has spoken some incredible theology to them, hasn't He? I mean... No one is the theologian that the Apostle Paul is. Period. Nobody. He stands alone. He was being bold and speaking to them, not because they were ignorant, not because they were immature, not because they were foolish, but because they were strong. And Paul wanted them to be even stronger. You see, beloved, that's the heart of a pastor. You know, I speak boldly to you. I'm not trying to make this about me, but I want you to understand this. I speak boldly to you because you are strong, you're getting stronger, and I want you to be stronger. Because I don't want you to be picked off like a sheep at the back of the herd that gets dragged away by the, by the wolf. I want you to be safe and secure in Christ. Yes, if you're truly saved, you're secure in Christ, come what may. But God keeps you secure by means. Doesn't He? 
Paul spoke boldly because he wanted to be stronger. He wanted them to be even more uncompromising and steadfast. There was an urgency in him, man, to, to, to refresh their minds on the truth, to renew their thinking, to deepen their understanding of the gospel, to keep it vibrant in their minds so that they would apply it continually to their souls. And to, to write all this, to remind them, was no small undertaking. So what was behind Paul doing it? He tells us it was because he was compelled to do so by the grace of God. That's why. It's because he had received the grace of God. It's because he who had been formerly a murderer of Christians and a killer of those of the way, this one who had been a persecutor of the flock of Christ and who admits in himself, I am the least of all apostles. This man had received the grace of God and he'd been saved and he was given a commission as an apostle of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And buddy, he had a debt to fulfill and he wasn't going to die without doing everything he could to try to fulfill that debt. He was a living sacrifice. Scripture says, he says here, in a priestly service to the gospel of God. What's he mean by that? It's two things, really. First, Paul is actually taking up the role as a faithful Jew that the Jews in the past failed to accomplish, which was to be a kingdom of priests for the glory of God and the salvation of the nations. They didn't do it. But moreover, like a priest in the Old Testament made offerings to the Lord, so Paul was making an offering of the Gentiles to the Lord. That was his role as a priest. He was offering the Gentiles to the Lord. These Gentiles that he had preached the gospel to. He was being faithful to carry out his commission so the gospel would be well planted in the hearts of the Gentile Christians in Rome so they wouldn't be found to be false converts or fall away, but they would be blameless and innocent. They would be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation among whom they would hold fast, among whom, as lights, they would hold fast the word of life. Paul had no other competing motivations but to preach the gospel in its fullness. Paul didn't, didn't, wasn't trying to get popular. He didn't care about being famous. He didn't care about having a branded ministry. Paul didn't care about whether or not people tweeted Paul. He didn't care. Paul's only concern, his only mo- motivation, was to preach the gospel in its fullness so that the offering of the, of the Gentiles, their sacrificial service, the offering of praise and lip and life by these Gentiles, that it would be acceptable to God and made holy by the Holy Spirit. Paul stands significantly different from, you know, the modern evangelists and missionaries, and I put that in quotes, the modern evangelists and missionaries whose main motivation is just to get a profession of faith. Just give me a profession of faith. That's all I'm looking for. Just make a profession of faith. That was not Paul's heart at all. I don't know how missionary work got reduced to that, but that's not what Paul did. It wasn't just getting a profession of faith. Rather, it was seeing real faith that resulted in real godliness and in real transformation of life. He was bold because he didn't want him to fall away. He wanted him to grow stronger and keep growing in grace. And he labored to that end. That's why he was willing to suffer as he did. And nobody suffered like Paul except Christ. Right? That's why he was willing to suffer as he did. 
He said to Timothy, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He wanted to see the Gentiles saved. He wanted to see them actually saved and be bringing forth good fruit unto the Lord. So that he might present them, as he said to the Corinthians, as a, as a pure virgin to Christ. He wrote this letter because he was filled with an obligation to preach the gospel and to present it to a faithful, or present to God a faithful and a pleasing people, right? The Roman Christians needed that. And so do we. Beloved, that's the very reason why we have a host of people who preach and who teach the the Scriptures here several times a week. Several times a week. In several different contexts. It's for your growth in Christ. It's for your strength in Christ. It's for your maturity. It's for your strengthening. It's so that you won't be tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather so that you might grow up into the head through the speaking of the truth in love. So you might become more like Christ. I want to ask you a question and I want you to be honest. No excuses. Are you taking advantage of these opportunities? Are you? Or are you just happy that the church provides them? Because I can tell you right now, there are some people that never come to these things that if we stopped providing them, would have a lot to say about it. Are you here every Sunday? Are you here on Wednesdays? Are you in Sunday school? Are you in a Bible study? It's not a matter of whether or not a good, a well-rounded church should provide those things. The question is, are you taking advantage of them? Are you taking advantage of those opportunities? I'm telling you, man, do it for the sake of your soul. I, I want you to hear what I'm saying to you right now. Please hear me when I say this. There is nothing more important. Nothing more important for the instruction of your soul than for you to be under the Word of God as much as you possibly can. You need it for the sake of your soul. I don't know, my soul's pretty good right now. Says the one who's foolish. You need it. I need it. Why do you think Peter writes, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's not Frank Peretti writing his little scary novel. He's speaking the truth. And one we need to hear. We need continual reminding of the truth because we have an enemy that's constantly seeking to destroy us. He doesn't take a break. He never says, bless you, he never says, you know what? That work that I did on diluting that soul, that's enough for today. Never. Not once. That's not what he does. 
We can't be casual about the means that God has provided for our protection and our growth in grace. We need to take advantage of them with everything that's in us. And kind of bringing that section to an end and then kind of moving on to a little bit more about, you know, the ministry. Paul says something here that at first blush kind of makes you go, oh, what's Paul doing? It, you know, it's kind of, it seems out of place. It's almost shocking. Paul speaks of his pride in his work for God. Look what he says, verses 17 through 19. He said, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work in God, for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And when you first read that word pride, you're like, you know, kind of suck in through your teeth a little bit. Like, what is Paul doing here? He's about to get waxed, right? But the suddenness and the shock of Paul talking about his pride and his work for God immediately fades when you consider the two phrases by which he qualifies it, right? When he says, in Christ Jesus and what Christ has accomplished through me. So here's what Paul is doing. Paul is not, you know... I'm I'm trying to think. He's not Travis Kelsey beating his chest and striking a pose and trying to dance after scoring the winning touchdown. That's not what he's doing here, okay? That's not what he's trying to to pull off. It's not him boasting in himself. He did enough of that when he was a Pharisee, right? That's not what's going on. He's not being self-glorying. He's not being self-magnifying. Now, indeed, Paul did work for the Lord, right? He did good work for the Lord, but he's saying, look, it was Christ in me. It wasn't me. He's not boasting in himself. He's boasting in Christ. And what he's getting at is this. is You know what? Christ Jesus has made me his known. He lives in me now. I'm in union with him. And it's, it's no longer I who work. It is Christ who's at work in me and who, who works through me for the sake of his gospel. And praise God, he is working in me. For your good. For your good. And he's celebrating. He's celebrating that Christ, through Paul, had brought the Gentiles to salvation. That Christ, in and through Paul's ministry, had brought them to the obedience of faith, right? That the Lord did through, look at it, look what he says here, Paul's word and deed, right? It's preaching as an example. He did it through the apostolic signs and wonders that he performed by the power of the Holy Spirit so that the gospel that he was preaching was authenticated, Right? In fact, Christ had so favored Paul that from Jerusalem to Illyricum, Illyricum is the area that now of modern day Serbia, Croatia, and Hungary. It's about 2,200, 2,500 miles away from Jerusalem, right? Then in that vast swath of land, the gospel truth had gone out in power, and Paul could honestly say that he fulfilled the ministry of the gospel. What's he mean by that? It doesn't mean that he's preached to every single person living in the vast area, but rather that he fulfilled his mission to preach Christ and establish churches in crucial places as as outposts, right, from which Christians could go and evangelize the rest of the people in those areas. Christ had done a massive work of grace using Paul as an instrument. And you know what's cool about Paul? Paul doesn't do the whole, you know, false humility thing here. 
He's not like, oh, I know the gospel's gone out everywhere, but it's no big thing. All shucks, right? He doesn't do that. He's not a glory stealer like the false apostles, but neither is he a glory denier. He puts the glory exactly where it needs to be, on the Lord Jesus Christ, on Him. He'd been a faithful and a productive servant to the Lord. In fact, so much so that he could later say to Timothy, Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now go preach it. By the power of Christ in him, Paul had been faithful to the calling of God and the demands of the apostolic ministry with all integrity. Paul could honestly say, as he faced imprisonment, think about this. He, he, is, he is departing from the Ephesian elders. He knows he's going to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to suffer. And he knows he's going to be imprisoned. He knows it. Like it's not, oh, this might happen to you. It's the Holy Spirit has revealed to him exactly this is what's going to happen. And Paul's response to that when he's talking to the Ephesian elders is this. I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I do not care about anything else. In fact, beloved, it would only be a matter of a few years until Paul was arrested and then imprisoned in Rome before he was martyred around 64 A.D. So here's the question, man. Think about it. Paul had been laboring intensively for the gospel, right? This is a guy that at least deserved a furlough. Maybe a sabbatical, right? I mean, this is a guy that had worked earnestly and intently and physically and emotionally and spiritually and mentally. Man, he had been wound out for the gospel. So why not? With so much success in ministry, why not just ride off into the sunset? Why not just, you know, buy a little cottage somewhere? Maybe on Mount Olivet, you know, so you can be ready when Christ comes back. Like why not why not just go and and take a rest? Why? I mean, hadn't Paul earned a respite from the rigors of ministry? Here's an idea. Why not just become an apostle emeritus? Just, I'll do the thing and I'll send you guys out and I'll watch over it and it'll be good. One reason. One singular reason. One. Because of Paul's holy ambition. Can I tell you what? In our day and age, ambition sometimes can be horribly skewed, can it not? We speak of somebody, and we don't always mean it, you know, as a compliment when we say that person's an ambitious fellow. Some ambitions come straight from the pit. But not Paul's. He says, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. 
Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But, as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul had a holy ambition. You know what it was? To preach Christ. To preach the gospel. To preach where it had not yet been heard. To preach where the gospel had not yet been proclaimed. In other words, Paul's ministry, listen to me when I say this, Paul's ministry was not just a job to complete and from which to retire. It was a divine calling that did not go out of date. A divine calling to fulfill the commandment of the Lord. Paul was possessed of a missionary spirit. He was consumed with a holy passion to serve the Lord by preaching the gospel where Christ had never been preached because he was convinced of God's sovereign intention to save a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and he wanted to be a part of it. He was gripped with a holy ambition. And he quotes these words from Isaiah 52, verse 15, which describe the evangelization of the nations. Those who have never been told of Him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. In fact, you know, when Paul asked those questions earlier in Romans chapter 10, he wasn't just asking when he says, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. When Paul asked those questions, he himself determined to be an answer. I'll do it. Now listen, beloved, here's what I'm getting at. You may not be called in the same sense as Paul. You may not be called in the same sense as I am. But you, but my question is, is do you have a passion? Do you have a holy ambition that people would hear the gospel and see and understand and be saved? Do you have that? Do you have a like passion that's born of awe at the grace that you've received? And you want others to know Christ as you do. Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon. Name dropping so that you'll listen because this is an important quote. Charles Spurgeon said, and I'm going to warn you, these are strong, but they're necessary words. You may think that Charles could have said it better. Charles Spurgeon said, this is strong stuff. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. What? I'm going to read it again. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Think on that. Recollect that is what he's saying. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love Him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about Him. Of course... I do not mean by that that those who use the pen are silent. They are not. And those who help others to use the tongue or spread that which others have written are doing their part well. But the man who says, I believe in Jesus, 
but does not think enough of Jesus ever to tell another about him by mouth or pen or tract is an imposter. Strong words, no? Those are strong words, aren't they? Beloved, each one of us ought to share this same holy ambition with Paul. No, we're not apostles, maybe, or missionaries. You may not be a preacher. In fact, there are any number of careers and jobs and whatever that are represented in our body. But let us never lose sight of the fact that above all else, beloved, we are ambassadors in this dark world. We are ministering the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the gospel must permeate our marriages and our family life and our work and our relationships, our everything. Because here's why. As those who wear the name of Christ, we ought not wear it in vain. We ought not wear it in vain. Do not take the name of your Lord in vain. How we live, our conversations, what we say, what we do, how we treat other people, how we get along in this world, how we look for opportunities to care for other people, how we, you know, reflect the character of Christ, how much weight the Word of God holds in our hearts, how we treat the Lord and how we treat other people. It either adorns the gospel or detracts from it. That's just the truth. If you're known as a Christian, and you've done much talk as a Christian, right? You know your life. You know your life. It either adorns or it detracts from the gospel. And so... I'll close with these compelling words from J.C. Ryle. Let's take them to heart. He says, Let us be real, honest, and sincere in our Christianity. We cannot deceive an all-seeing God. We cannot deceive an all-seeing God. Let us cleave to Christ more closely. Love Him more heartily. Love, live to Him more thoroughly. Copy Him more exactly. Confess Him more boldly. Follow Him more fully. I'm going to read that quote in its entirety one more time. Let us be real, honest, and sincere in our Christianity cannot deceive an all-seeing God. Let us cleave to Christ more closely. Love Him more heartily. Live to Him more thoroughly. Copy Him more exactly. Confess Him more boldly. Follow Him more fully. Amen. May we all. Let's pray. Father, I pray that these words that have been heard this morning... Father, You'll take them and apply them to our hearts in a powerful way like only You can do. I pray, Lord God, for those that are believers in the sanctuary that, Father God, they would be both encouraged and, Father, admonished and warned and exhorted 
to a greater faith and a greater love and a greater faithfulness and obedience to our Lord, to you. And Father, for those that are here in this room whose understanding of the gospel is merely theoretical, it's just in their heads. And they've never really come to the place of surrendering themselves in fullness to the God who is and not just to a concept. They've never come to the place of confessing their sin and calling on you, Lord Jesus, alone who can save. Repenting and believing in you, I pray that today would be the very day of their salvation. So please move in our midst during this time. For the praise of your glory, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.